But today, for this, this morning, we're jumping into a new series, as you see up on the screens, called At the Table. And uh, I want to spend just a few minutes setting this up with you. This fall, um, we're looking at all the places in Luke's gospel where Jesus sat down and ate with ordinary, everyday people like you and me. Here's the significance of, of that. Um, we're going to find that for Luke, throughout his story, throughout his, his gospel, the table is a uniquely meaningful place. There's something powerful that happens when we break bread together, right? Just consider your own life for a minute. Just consider what are, what are the most meaningful meals you, you've had with loved ones. Luke is so caught up in, in that concept that he actually writes 10 very specific stories of Jesus at the table, eating with those that he loved. And get this, seven of those 10 are exclusive to Luke's gospel. He's obsessed with this concept. He somehow tells us about this Jesus who takes this mundane routine of breakfast, lunch, and dinner and uses it to transform people in such a way that by the time they pull the chair out and they leave the place, they're changed forever. And just think this through with me as we, as we process and prepare for, for what's to come here. It makes sense that Jesus would do this, right? I mean, let's, just, let's play this out. Let's assume for a minute that, that you eat three meals a day. Reed and I were just talking about intermittent fasting. Not all of us are doing the three meals a day, I get it. But let's just assume that for most of us, we eat three meals a day. And that on average, we spend an hour each day for each meal. Maybe a little bit shorter for breakfast, a little bit longer for dinner. That means, if I've done my math right, you spend 21 hours per week eating food. That's 1,095 hours a year. And if you live into your 90s, that's nearly, get this, six million minutes of doing nothing but stuffing your face in this lifetime. It's kind of crazy. You know, we're a culture, as I think all cultures are, of passionate people that love what they eat. We love food. Go to the store, and, and on every shelf in America now, it's organic this and all natural that, pasture raised over here and locally farmed right here. But hear this, hear this. For Jesus, it was rarely about what was on the table. And it was way more about who was at the table. And what we're going to find in this series, right, is that this man, Jesus, every time he took a bite in Luke's gospel, he was always eating with someone else. Every time without fail. In fact, in Luke's gospel, if there was a meal to be had, Christ was having it with someone he cared deeply about. We're going to look at that all fall. Because for Jesus, there is something countercultural that takes place at the table. Something that goes against the grain of the busyness and craziness of this life. Food was not about consumption for him. Food was relational. Food was intentional. It was ministry. It was missional. So for the next few months, here's the experiment I want to play out for you. Here's kind of my challenge, and we're going to dive deeper and deeper into this and what it means. But here's my question just for this morning to get us started. What if we change the way we eat, and as believers, in so doing, that changed the way we live our faith, such that others, through our mealtimes, would come to know Christ? Just hold on to that. We'll get more specific. This morning, we're going to open up to this first place in Luke where Jesus did just that. Luke 5, 27 to 32. And you're going to find Jesus gets invited to this meal of misfits. 
And by this invite, he does something so opposite to the cultural norms that he causes an uproar. And where most of us might shrink from the threat ahead, Jesus actually doubles down and in the midst of that tension, brings the gospel in a really unique way. So let's, let's look at this. Chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, first place at the table, verses 27 to 32. Hear now God's word. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners into repentance. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. He that goes to bed with dogs ariseth with fleas. Remember the first time you heard that statement? He that goes to bed with dogs ariseth with fleas. I was maybe 10 or 11 years old and I ran into this group of kids down the street. They were carrying this PVC pipe in the neighborhood and they had rigged this thing with duct tape and they had turned it into like this bottle rocket missile launcher. And I remember just being like fascinated by this, this discovery that I had never seen before. This is a young boy's dream, right? It was like cops and robbers mixed with things that blow up. What else could you ask for? And I remember my mother catching wind of this from one of my brothers and she yanked me back into the house. She gave me this lecture that was that lesson almost to a T. She said two things. She said, Ryan, you play with fire, you're gonna get burned, and that's true. She said, you hang out with dogs, you're gonna get fleas. That expression first appeared all the way back in 1573, and for centuries now, it's become a apparent catchphrase, right? If not that, then something like it. You are who you hang out with. Bad company corrupts good character. You tell me who your friends are, and I'll tell me everything I need to know about you. And it's actually somewhat biblical. Uh, Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I think it's a truth worth heeding for us. But if you live by that axiom, if you abide by that, then this passage presents a bit of a problem. That is... What is Jesus doing having a dinner party with flea-infested filth? Did you catch the question? Look again at verse 30. They asked him, what are you doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? From the very get-go, there's, there's something culturally taboo in this story, right? Jesus is walking by this tax booth along the road, and look at this in verse 27. As he went out, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting on this road. And for some divine reason, Jesus decides, this is my guy. And he said to him, follow me. And right there with that very invitation, this single act broke all the religious customs, norms, and rules of the day. If you were a faithful Jew, you didn't dare associate with that kind of filth. 
You know, today we bring our own baggage to the story. Um, we think about tax collectors, and I, I think for most of us, we, we start thinking about 87,000 IRS agents coming at us. Am I right? But you have to understand, set that aside for a minute. It's, it's not so much the IRS that's the problem. It's not the tax collector that's the issue. There's something far more egregious going on here. To be in the Jewish population, right? As a faithful Jew, you would have seen Levi as a dog among fleas. Tax collectors in Roman times were far worse than we can even imagine. They were absolute sellouts. They were defectors. Their job, as I said, was to sit in booths along the roadside, along roads from city to city, and they would collect payment from their debtors. Except these men, these collectors, were not Romans. They were Jews. They had defected from their national roots and decided instead to work for the occupying enemy. And so therefore, they were seen as traitors who were taking from their countrymen, from the empirical tyrant that was Rome. But it wasn't just that. It gets even worse. Because most tax collectors were kind of bullies and thieves. It was well known that they would charge you more money than you owed so they could keep the excess for themselves. So that means Levi wasn't just presumably wealthy, right? He was illegitimately wealthy. He made money on your backside. And you add all that up, and what that means is that Levi is probably one of the most hated, despised, dejected men in the land. Not for Jesus. Christ says, you'll do. Come on, follow me. Top 12, you're in. Let's go. This is a polarizing moment. And yet if that's not enough, look at this in verse 28. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Isn't that a cool story? Jesus calls the worst of society and immediately by his immeasurable grace, by the Holy Spirit, he changes this man's life forever. What an incredible thing Christ does. And if we stopped right there, this would, this would be a really easy lesson. We, we could quit right now and be quite simple. The evil Levi, by God's mercy, repents of his wickedness, leaves it all in abandon of Christ. Makes for a great sermon that'll preach. And yet that's not where this story ends. Because Levi is apparently so excited, he's so caught up in this new identity, that he asks Christ to come to a meal, not just with one deplorable, but with a crowd of them. I mean, he's so on fire for the Lord. He brings Jesus into the house of defectors, packed full with the worst of society. This is not a dog with fleas. This is the entire kennel. Mama said you don't hang out with those people. Look at this in verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors eating at the table with the two of them. I mean, this is no small dinner party, right? This is, this is a great feast. This was a block party. An entire crew of disreputable and reprehensible men. Jesus is really out on a limb here. In fact, he's so far out on the limb that the branch is breaking. And yet, get this. Here's what I think is fascinating about this, this story of Christ. Jesus doesn't care. I mean, there's clearly something different about this man, right? He could care less about what others think around him. He takes society's rule book, the cultural norms of his day, and he looks up the part about who you can and can't eat with, and he throws it to the side. 
And his first act at the table, his first meal in Luke's gospel, he sits with the very ones who no one in their right mind in their worst nightmare would even fathom of being in company with. Again, look at this in verse 30. The religious show up and they're either curious or furious. I'll let you decide which one it is. I'm going with furious. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, my guess is they're not really looking for an answer here. Right? This is more like, who do you think you are? You call yourself a rabbi? What are you doing? Look at who you're eating with. They say to his disciples. You know, the definition of sinner in the, in the Mishnah, it won't surprise you. It re- referred to those who live really by worldly ways. They were the, the gamblers, the, the Sabbath breakers. They were thieves. They were the, the violent criminals. It was, it was a word of ill repute. And by that, I mean, if you associated with them, then you lost your reputation. Years ago, I was at a restaurant here in town with the girls, and it was one of those dark and cold middle of winter kind of nights, dumping snow. And I, I watched this man come into the entryway of this restaurant. He just looked rough. His hands were twitching. He was probably on something. He was hunched over. His jeans were ripped up from the knee down. And he was trying to look inconspicuous in the room. Right, but it was clear from the get-go, like he just wanted to warm up a little, but he was doing a terrible job blending in. So, of course, the hostess noticed this, and I, I watched as she walked over and sort of kind of motioned for him to leave. But just as she did, he shocked her and asked for a table. So she called the manager over, and he, this manager began to speak with him. And this, this, this manager told him, he said, I can't seat you without proof of payment. In other words, unlike everyone else in this room who fits the part, you need to prepay. Because either your reputation precedes you or the look of your reputation precedes you. But before the man could even get out his wallet and make an attempt, it was clear he didn't fit in, right? And therefore, he wasn't welcome. He was clearly homeless. He had no money. He was a nuisance. He, he probably reeked keep the customers away. And I think for some, maybe even just having that man sit in that restaurant, it would have been offensive. I mean, if, if not the very least, the, the management. That's the kind of picture the Pharisees had in mind. A rabbi didn't eat with those kind of people. Just notice like the insider-outsider motif taking place in this passage. There, there are the religious experts, right? Let's not pick on the Pharisees for a minute. We, we, we love to do that. But they were the ones who worked their entire lives for righteousness. Faithful of the faithful. Memorized the law. Defined purity. And they cannot believe their eyes. Like, wait, Jesus is sitting with who? Th- those are the people that should be outside in the cold in the dumpster. After all, they've earned it. They're reclining at the table. See, I don't think I can overstate this enough. This was a complete scandal. Tax collectors handled money from Gentiles. That, that act alone made them unclean. To a Jew, they were unwelcome. They weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed at the table. They weren't allowed near the toilet. He that goeth to bed with dogs ariseth with fleas. And yet, look at Jesus' response. Look how he doubles down. He says, don't you see Those who are well, they have no need of a physician. Those who are sick, those are the ones that need a doctor. And then almost as if the the Pharisees are like caught up looking at him like deer in headlights, he goes, all right, I'll lay it out. Here's my cards. I didn't come to have dinner with the righteous. I came to save sinners. 
and repentance. Just walk out this, this metaphor with me for a minute, this doctor metaphor. The last time you were at the doctor, did you, did you swing on by just to say hello because you missed him? I mean, when I go to the doctor, right, you typically don't come in casually. Bring your, bring your PA a Starbucks just because, although I'm sure they would appreciate that. No, when we go to the doctor, right, it's because we know there's something wrong with us. It's, it's because as a prideful man or, or woman, you've had to acknowledge that you are not going to fix this problem on your own. No one goes to a doctor and sits down and says, well, doc, the reason I'm here is because my life is great, my body's perfect, everything's good. No, we go to the doctor with an admission that we need help. We call 911 and go to the, the ER because we know we need saving in that moment. See, and what Jesus offers at this table, right, in this perceived moment of indignity is actually a complete reversal. That for these Pharisees who believe they've earned their place at the table and they've got life figured out, Jesus says, mm, this table probably isn't for you. Because it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. He says, if, look, if you believe to be without sin, to be perfect and blameless, then clearly you, you must not need me, Right? And yet Jesus knew full well, the Pharisees knew full well, and we all know full well, there is no one who's righteous. We're all sick. Look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It has nothing, he says, as far as I know, to say to people who don't believe they have done anything to repent of and who don't feel they need any forgiveness. I want to close with three quick thoughts, just land the plane and put on the ground real tangible. Just to help us think maybe how we can carry this out even this week. And I don't have the points up on the, the screen, so listen carefully to this. The first one is this. None of us deserve a seat at the table. I will tell you right now that the day that we be begin believing, maybe even a, a minute bit, that we are above it all because of the way we think or because of the way we live, because of the politics we adhere to or the success we've established or the righteous life that we've put on. This story reminds us, right, that we become the Pharisee. I once heard it said the reason we say grace before meals, right, is to be reminded how blessed we are to be there in the first place. But second, with that, right, if God can call a tax collector like Levi, how much more can he call you and I? I know I've, I've left you with this tension the, the whole morning, right? How is it that mom told me not to lie with dogs and yet Jesus seems to pull it off? How does he do that? You know why Jesus can eat dinner with flea-infested people, with the, with the worst of society? You know what makes him the, the exception to that rule? He's the only one to have walked planet Earth who can wash away the infestation. He's the only one who can cleanse us from our worst. I mean, really, think about this. You, you think you're too far ground? Do, do you think that what you've done is too far off? Let me just tell you that you are wrong. Just as you will never be righteous enough on your own to be with him, so you can never be unrighteous enough to be cast from his presence if you're in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? See, Jesus didn't just eat with sinners. He lived with them. He called them to leadership, right? He died for them. He saved them. And to be clear, that, that doesn't mean that we have license now today to go and sin boldly. 
Now remember this. What's the first thing that Levi does? He repents. Right? He leaves it all. Leaves his wealth. Leaves his power. Leaves his prestige. Leaves it and follows Jesus. That's the kind of life Christ wants us to live, right? And yet we'll never find that if we're judging others as we believe to have ourselves made it. I think, I think the, the sign of a mature or a man or woman in Christ is that we wake up every day going, man, but by the grace of God go I. And what's the second thing that Levi does? He invites his friends to the table. This is our third point. The question I want us to think about this week all the way through this fall is what tax collector do you know in your life that needs to be invited over for dinner? Really, I don't mean this as like an existential like pie in the sky, like that was, a, that was a good sermon, thanks preacher moment. I mean, what if God wants to use your table or your coffee cup as their invitation to him? You know, we do all kinds of meals as a church. I love eating with y'all. We, we eat all the time. We've, we've got potlucks and summer barbecues and, and we're always eating something together. But what would it look like, right, if we took our ordinary meal time, those thousands of hours a year, and we thought about it differently in such a way that it wasn't food to consume, but lives to transform. My brother just recently told me a story of a, a couple who... Um, had had him and his family over for dinner and down the road, neighbors of theirs, and really acquaintances. They didn't know my brother from Adam. They didn't know if he was a believer or not. And at the beginning of the meal, this husband asked uh, my brother and his family if it would be okay if they said grace. It's a typical Western thing that we, we do at the table. My brother, of course, chimed in. He said, yeah, certainly, let's, let's do it. To which the man of the house then asked, hey, since we're praying, what can I pray for you? My brother called it the most meaningful, uncomfortable moment he had had all year. Those who are well, Jesus said, has no need of a physician. It's those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. If that's true, if you believe that for your own life, who else needs to be at the table? Let's ask God to not only reveal that to us, but to help us to put that in practice this week. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you, Lord, that um, as we look at this table before us now with the, the bread and the, the wine before us, God, we are reminded of your incredible, amazing grace. God, and as we look over our own lives, there, there's not a one of us in this room who, who can say, yeah, on my own merit, I belong there. Because, God, even some of us, even as of this morning, we can look back and realize the places where we need you. So, Lord, we thank you for, for Christ. We thank you for covering our sins by his blood. We, we thank you that you've invited us to the table, broken as we are. God, we ask, would you search us and know us? God, if there's a way in us that is of offense, would you cleanse us from all unrighteousness? But Lord, in that, in that place where we stand both sinner and saint, would you also help us to see those in our lives that don't know you, that are lost, that are wandering, that are struggling? And God, would you help us, enable us, equip us 
to invite them to our table. Lord, help us to think about what that would look like. But Lord, even more, help us to live and put that into practice in our lives. God, we just pray, would you bless our breakfast this week? Would you bless our lunch? Would you bless our dinner for one thing? That we would be a blessing for you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.